0: Post office. I use it on a regular basis to buy stamps and other products. The post office describes itself on its website as a business which really matters. They say they are a business driven by social purpose to be there for its customers. However, they let so many of their employees down and destroyed lives when they wrongfully accused and prosecuted so many for stealing from them. The reality was but lots of people hadn't stolen from them. Of course, there will be some that had, but the horizon system they were using had lots of problems with it. And they presumed that the information was accurate. And even when they realized that there were these problems occurring, did they disclose this information to others? No, they didn't. What they did was cover things up and they told each individual in the majority of cases that I've heard about, but they were the only ones. They lied. They knew that there were others. In this episode, I talked to Linton Orrin. Linton was a barrister who was involved in the April appeal and represented four people whose convictions were overturned. I then talked to Scott, who was a victim of this miscarriage of justice, and he was forced into a position where he had no alternative but to plead guilty to false accounting charges. Finally, in this episode, I talked to Marion, whose late husband, Peter, paid the ultimate price before he died of having no alternative but to plead guilty to a number of offences, which he shouldn't have had to do. Conviction was quashed in April. He never got to see the day when this happened. It is a tragic example of a large-scale miscarriage of justice that has and continues to shock the nation. And so many people should be looking over their shoulder about what they did, because as they say, you reap what you sow. Hi, Linton. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. I wondered if you could just, first of all, just
1: introduce yourself. First of all, can I say thank you for inviting me to do this podcast and also for speaking with our clients, we all really appreciate it. My name's Linton Orette. I'm a barrister with Nexus Chambers. I've been a barrister now for I think coming on for three years. And before that, I was solicitor advocate for around 10, 11 years. I always specialized in crime and continue to do so, even though there's now a bit of mediation coming into the bit mix as well.
0: Thank you. And I wonder if you could just tell us how and why you became involved with the post office appeal case.
1: Yeah, a colleague in chambers, Sam Steen QC, was already involved in the case. He was working with Paul Harris and Nigel Tahir at Edwardsville Bradshaw Watterson. And they asked me to come on board. Of course, once I would already heard the background to the case, so I knew a bit about it. And then once they asked me to join them, it was a no-brainer. We had to do it.
0: And I wondered if you could just tell, for those people who don't know, tell us a little bit about the background to the case.
1: All right, essentially, it comes down to this. The post office that people go into every day of their lives, they are run by people who are employed by the actual post office itself. They have a contract with them. A contract which, as it turns out, was very, well, it didn't take care of the small person, put it like that, who runs their independent business. So what happened is the post office, sub postmasters would enter into a contract with the post office which said exactly if there is a discrepancy, a shortfall in the amount of money which the post office say is due, unless it's rectified, it comes out of the pocket of the sub-postmaster, regardless of whether the post office can prove it's their fault or not. Now, those contracts were in place for years. And around 20 years ago, the post office introduced a computer system. That system was known as Horizon. From the start, sub-postmasters were saying, look, there's something Wrong with this system? There are glitches. Money's going missing. Money's showing up where it shouldn't. We can't rectify it. Please, can you sort out your system? The post office, from the beginning, right through for the next two decades or so, said, "Not our problem. Any problems are with you. If you don't give us our money, we will take you to court." Mm-hmm. Eventually, it got to the position where the post office started to prosecute sub postmasters and sub postmistresses for theft and for false accounting, even though they didn't have the proper evidence to do so.
0: And I know that in the appeal case, you represented people who had been wrongly convicted. Some, as you say, pleaded guilty to false accounting. Some had had a trial and, and been convicted and imprisoned. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about the
1: appeal, what the grounds of appeal were. Okay, there were two grounds of appeal. Within our system, if a prosecution is so unfair that it should not have taken place, then you can appeal your prosecution. Now, there are two elements to that, what we call an abusive process. There's one where a fair trial was not possible at all, and the other element is where a fair trial was possible, but so much went wrong that a fair trial didn't take place. These appeals were based upon, quite simply, for years, people had been saying there's something wrong with the computer system. The post office, people who were being or who were convicted or pleaded guilty, said it's not us, it's it's the system. And the post office failed to disclose evidence which would have showed that there were problems with the system from the beginning. So evidence which existed which would have supported The defences were sat on by the post office, but it went further than that. Also, there was almost a culture within the post office to avoid any form of criticism against the Horizon system. It went so far that by the time we got to the appeal, during the process there, it was revealed to us that there were documents from the post office which were a clear indication of how they thought about things, saying, look, Any minutes from meetings that discuss this Horizon issue, they should be destroyed. They shouldn't be kept because they may have to be revealed at a later stage. Now, if anyone knows about disclosure in criminal proceedings, you shouldn't be destroying documents and you shouldn't be giving instructions to people within the post office to destroy minutes of meetings. It's just unconscionable.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? Because, like you said, anyone who knows anything about criminal law, or anyone in general, I think would be shocked to hear that the post office, who hold themselves to have so much integrity, or that's what they wanted to give the impression to everyone, that they had this integrity, does something like that. And my understanding also was that there was this idea that if you didn't write things down then it didn't have to be disclosed.
1: Yeah, that's true. That was in the same um, disclosure. It, it just beggars belief nowadays that an entity that called itself the nation's sweetheart was treating its workers and the people it employed with such utter contempt. Now, the reason it becomes really important is because, P, these were all people who were of good character, which means no convictions, no cautions, never been in trouble by the law. And indeed, they had to be vetted by the post office before they were given the responsibility of running their local sub post office. And for that process to take place and then for the post office to ignore, which really I think, and this is my personal view, was for commercial reasons, to ignore the lives that were being destroyed by the prosecutions. Still still to this day, it just leaves me shaking my head.
0: And how long were you actually involved in this case for?
1: I was only in it for around a year because the struggle for the justice for these wrongly convicted people had been gone, going on for decades. And I think what really helped was the work that led up to the Criminal Cases Review Commission referring these cases back to the Court of Appeal because some of them had appealed their convictions and lost because the post office had always refused to say there was anything wrong with Horizon and they didn't disclose documents that would have assisted their appeal. So there was a civil action brought on behalf of many of the sub-postmasters overseen by Justice Fraser in the High Court. Now, if anyone has the time (laughs) or the inclination. There are a series of judgments, um, the Bates judgments, which are worth reading in full. Because as the Court of Appeal said, no one will ever know more about these miscarriages than Justice Fraser, and he was damning of the post office. Now, because of the outcome of the civil action, the post office then settled and made offers to some of the sub postmasters. Not all, anyone who had been convicted or who had pleaded guilty were not part of that group settlement. That the, the High court action made the Criminal Cases Review Commission look at these cases again. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, the Criminal Cases Review Commission is a body that's been set up. It's a statutory body that allows for cases which either haven't been appealed or have been appealed and lost to be looked at again. The Criminal Cases Commission reviewed all of these post office cases and they took the same view as any other decent person, really. And they sent them to the Court of Appeal. Once that was done, that's when the criminal lawyers who do appeal work became involved again. The four that
0: had their convictions quashed uh, that you represented, my understanding is they found, like you said, that, that there was on both grounds. It wasn't just one ground. The post office had conceded, hadn't they, that... There was an abusive process in terms of not being able to have a fair trial because of the lack of disclosure and what had happened with the Horizon system. But the Court of Appeal went further and found on both grounds. In terms of the scale of the miscarriage of justice, because obviously... There were a number of people that, uh, as you said, were involved in a high court case. There were lots of other people that were prosecuted, either pleaded or, or uh, were found guilty after trial. How many people do you think potentially could have been victim of a miscarriage of justice?
1: Well, over a hundred. We've got more people who are coming forward now. There's a hearing in the next couple of weeks in the Court of Appeal to look at the new cases that are coming forward. Because as so often happens, um, when a lot of the people were convicted, it had such a devastating impact on their lives. Imagine if you're running the post office, you get convicted, you lose your livelihood, you lose your reputation. There were people who committed suicide and a lot of the others pushed it to the side and didn't want to be involved anymore because it was taking over their lives. So the ones who... have Pilled already, they've quite bravely, and for many of them, and with a lot of human cost, have come forward. But we're now finding because of that first tranche, other people are now saying, well, look, okay, we were victims of this as well so it's well over 100 could it be going towards 200 possibly i don't want to speculate too much because i know we alone have got i think around another seven or eight people that's just us other solicitors i know they are having referrals to them so it's a matter of watch this space but it really is what it not one of it. this is the biggest miscarriage of justice that the UK has ever seen. Because of the
0: scale, and like you said, the impact on not just the people who were prosecuted, but on their families, friends and their community.
1: Yeah yeah absolutely I I, I don't want to say names because I think it's best if each person tells their own story but some of the references we had on behalf of clients who re-represented these people were central to community life especially in rural areas and they were held with such high esteem that even after they were convicted or pleaded guilty the references all said we don't really believe this there's no way that this is the person we know and we're not sure how the post office can be proceeding. And I do want any listeners to understand that where some of the people pleaded guilty, they did so not with a willingness. They did so with a heavy heart because if they didn't plead guilty and they were found guilty after trial, the chances are they would go to prison. And quite a few of them did. And so they were advised by their lawyers and in most cases quite properly because of the lack of disclosure by the post office that their best interest would be to enter a guilty plea so they don't go to prison. And that's what they did. These aren't people who are experienced criminals. They are people mainly in their 40s and 50s at the time, always worked hard, get up five o'clock in the morning, stay open until seven o'clock at night, and service their communities. So, yeah, the scale of it on a human level is just, I don't know, it's just ridiculous. Like you said, the, the impact is unmeasurable, really,
0: because, yeah. you know, it's all well and good that some people might get compensation g course but that won't
1: take back the years that they've lost. Now I've been in a different situation where people were given compensation yeah. and it might buy a few things that you didn't have before but ultimately I think for each of our clients first of all having the not guilty because their verdicts were overturned, convictions overturned. And their convictions weren't just overturned because of the lack of disclosure, which would have allowed the post office to still say, well, look, okay, we should have disclosed more. But apart from that, nothing was wrong. And by the court coming and fighting in favour of the second of abuse, it enables everyone to say, look, these prosecutions really should never have been brought because we weren't guilty. And the post office should have listened to us, which I think is obviously essential importance.
0: In the next part of this episode, I talked to Scott Darlington. Scott was kind enough to let me come to his home address and to talk about what happened to him. It is a very distressing story. I think it's important that before you listen to what happened to Scott, you know a little bit about what happened at the Court of Appeal. I'm going to read from the Court of Appeal judgment. The post office accepts that this was an unexplained shortfall case that the evidence from Horizon was essential to Mr. Darlington's case. Based on the papers available from the criminal proceedings, there is nothing to suggest any ARQ data was obtained. There was no evidence to corroborate the Horizon evidence. There was no investigation into the integrity of the Horizon figures. There was no investigation into any calls made or not made by Mr. Darlington to the help desk. There was no proof of an actual loss as opposed to Horizon-generated shortfall as found by the judge at the sentence hearing. The Post Office conceded that Mr Darlington's prosecution was unfair. But we are bound, the Court of Appeal said, to conclude that his prosecution was in addition an affront to justice. The public interest requires us to mark this latter conclusion. We do so by allowing his appeal both on ground one and two, his convictions are unsafe, Notwithstanding his guilty pleas, we quash his convictions on all five counts. This is Scott's story. Hi, Scott. I wondered if you could first of all just introduce yourself to the podcast.
2: Hello, I am Scott Darlington. I'm in my 50s and I live in Macclesfield. Thank you.
0: And I wonder if you could tell me, first of all, what life was like before your nightmare began when you starting the po- uh, with the post
2: office? Well, from various things in my life. I'm, I'm a, an engineer, mechanical engineer. I'm, I'm also a qualified sound engineer. I used to be involved in music. I was involved in music for a long time until my daughter was born. And I decided to try and get more of a steady income, which I used some of the money that I've earned from music to purchase a business. And it turned out I purchased the post office. Uh, So everything was not too bad up until buying the post office. And I decided to buy it to improve my financial situation, really.
0: And to get a contract with the post office, what sort of vetting process did you have to go through?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of that. You have to provide financial history, obviously to do uh, CRB checks and everything. Uh, You have to have no criminal or uh, financial stains at all in your past. You have to provide a business plan, references from people. Uh, it's quite a big thing. It took a year, in fact, from the initial offer of being taken over the post office to actually taking it over.
0: And where was your post office based?
2: Mine was in Alderley Edge, which is a wealthy part of uh, Cheshire.
0: So you start at the post office. When, when was that? What
2: sort of year was it? In 2000 and to get this right 2005 i started the process
0: and did you have a sort of shop retail part yeah. as well or was it just the post office
2: it was a shop there's quite a large shop on the front and only a smallish post office at the back actually a three position counter of which two mainly two were used
0: and what sort of training did you get in terms <clears> of the system, which we all know now, the Horizon system?
2: Yes, uh, you get two weeks training, so ten days, where I went to Liverpool every day, where Post Office's training centre was right next to Lime Street Station, in Liverpool. So every day there, and you just did role play, pretty much role play most of the time, and and some technical instruction. When it came to the actual balancing, you know, we only did one of those. And I can guarantee that everybody there on the course that said there was me was very unsure about the whole procedure. There was that many facets to it that after a while, when you're in a post office, you get used to but training was pretty woeful looking back. I thought it would probably be enough, but looking back it wasn't.
0: And so when did things start to go wrong? Uh,
2: the first thing went wrong was in 2008, February 2008, when... We used to have discrepancies every balance, but they were usually small, a few pounds. And after the, the amount that we used to turn over in a in a month, because they started off as monthly balances and then they went to weekly balances, we turn over about one hundred and fifty thousand a week. So two or three pound discrepancy was okay. It was a little bit of human error. It wasn't worth worrying about, you know. And then in February two thousand eight, I had a discrepancy. It was seventeen hundred pounds. I'll get that right. Seventeen hundred and uh, which the computer said that I had £1,700 worth of stamps more than I'd actually got.
0: Bear in mind the cost of stamps, that would equate to quite quite a
2: few stamps. It's highly unlikely that someone made an error of that amount in stamps to a customer.
0: So what did you do in relation to that error? Um,
2: Well, we rang the helpline and I told them that i have got first-class stamps amounting to this much more than I've got. And he just said, well, I actually told him as well that they were correct the previous week, and we've been selling them all week since. We'd had no deliveries of stamps yet. Now we've got £800 more of stumps than I did have the previous week. And he said, well, unless you've got proof and documentation to this effect, how are you going to pay? Those are his actual words. So either cash, cheque, or he said you can settle centrally where we just remove it from your remuneration. So I did that. So for the following two months, they removed £850 out of each remuneration to cover the £1,700.
0: How did you feel about that? Because you could obviously see that it wasn't your fault and you must have been really concerned about, you know, where this increase of stamps had come from, so... How that make you feel when he just spoke to you in that way and, and was quite dismissive of the problem and said you've got to pay for it?
2: Yeah, well, me and the, my fellow colleague, Arthur, who'd run his own office for 30-odd years, he said alarm bells are ringing. I, was, I, I did still think that something would come back. I did still think that this discrepancy would be spotted somewhere further down the line. And uh, some kind of transaction corrections would be issued, but nothing ever came back. So then I started to think, right, something's fishy, you know, about this. And the next discrepancy that came along, I didn't tell them about.
0: And what was the next discrepancy? What uh, was
3: that for? The,
2: the first one was in the, I think it was in the March of 2008, and in September 2008, another discrepancy arrived. And if my memory is correct, it was there was either four or six thousand down, near enough. And uh, We spent till midnight, we stayed up all night, we printed out every possible piece of information we could use for tracing it and there was no transactions, no large ones or any strange ones that could have accounted for it. So we knew that there was a sort of bomb waiting to go off really.
0: And so what, what happens next?
2: Well, we didn't I didn't tell them. I rolled over into the next financial period so we could uh, trade and we spent night in, night out. I was paying him overtime for him to stay with me and seeing if we could somehow get to the bottom of it. And each balance, it was just going worse and worse and worse. And we were double checking each other as well. I mean, we trusting each other because we've been doing this for ages, but we started to double-check each other's work just to make sure nine droppers was making a silly error and not spotting it. And even when we were doing that, the discrepancies were just going up and up and up. So we knew there was something terribly wrong.
0: And like you said, you didn't feel that you could call the helpline again because you knew what yeah, they were yeah, going to say. Yeah,
2: procedure was going to be, yeah.
0: And you also... Could see things going up and up and up and I imagine that must have been really stressful for you and your colleague because you're then like you said you it is a ticking time bomb yeah really? I mean
2: we're going to be liable according to the contract we we're liable and we're up to 16 thousand now and then into the twenty thousand and eventually 44 thousand
0: that is obviously a considerable amount of money at some point obviously someone from the post office got involved how what happened and when was that what happened
2: there was uh, I got um, a message to remit out some excess money if you've got too much holdings as it's known they ask you to remit them out for safety and stuff like that in the post office and just not holding excess amounts of cash and they asked me to remit out. I think it was seventy thousand. I think, and I realised I hadn't quite got seventy thousand to remit out, so I didn't. And two days later, an auditor arrived, and I was pleased because I thought, despite this being a nightmare, this guy is going to help out now, and uh, we'll get to the bottom of it somehow, and I'll have somebody on my side, you know it didn't turn out to be quite that way.
0: So what happened when this auditor came?
2: Well, the auditor came and he said, have you got the money in the uh, safe that the system says you should have? And I said, no. So from the beginning, I didn't try and hide anything because I hadn't done anything and I didn't try and cover anything. I was pleased that he'd come. So I explained exactly what had happened so far and uh, and how we dealt with it basically, and, and just rolling over and keeping the losses in the system. He'd made a few phone calls, two guys from the internal fraud investigators arrived and I was taken to Macclesfield Post Office and interviewed under caution in a room above it that was just like a police station with a, already I've got a tape thing in it, lockable door and seats for the interview, you know, which was quite surprising seeing that, actually. <laughs> um, it was intimidating, but I didn't feel that intimidating because I felt, I, I know I haven't taken any money, so nothing could ever be levelled at me and they're going to have to get to the bottom of it now. And But so the interview was all, you know, biased into getting me to admit that I'd taken money. You know, that's what it was like from the off. Into At one point, one of the two chaps standing up, standing up and pointing at me saying, did you take the money, repeating it, did you take the money?
0: So very oppressive <clears throat> interview. Quite oppressive, yeah. Because you were obviously just trying to explain, I imagine, what had happened. Yeah. Um, right. and you'd also I presume told them about the fact that you'd run the helpline yeah. so right yeah, a very early stage you, you'd sought help and you'd obviously the money had been repaid so if you were stealing common sense why would you then ring up and sort of in a way tip people off that's that you right. were doing that that's right And at some point, did they want to search your house as well?
2: That's right. They said they were going to search my house, either with a warrant or with my permission. So I just gave them permission to come straight away. So we immediately went to my house and spent not too long, about 20 minutes, looking around. They told me they were looking for lifestyle change clues like brand new car outside or some fabulous new furniture, something fishy, you know, something fishy. And they realised there was nothing like that and uh, they left. And that was it for that.
0: And what happened with the post office? Were you allowed to continue running it? Or- no, I
2: wasn't allowed into the post office. They took the keys off me and uh, they offered somebody to run it on my behalf who would give me 10% of the remuneration. So they got these systems in place already. Well, 10% of the remuneration wouldn't have covered the rents, so I couldn't accept that. And I found someone myself who gave me half the remuneration. Looking back, though, I should have kicked them out because I was carrying on paying the rents in the premises while they carried on trading yet i wasn't allowed to go behind the counter
0: so at some point
2: you are prosecuted i was charged with fault, theft and false accounting that was the charges all the way to straight to crown court the first trip to crown court the post office didn't turn up it had to be adjourned they didn't arrive they didn't come so although i was stressed out leading up to it yeah had absolutely to come back two weeks later i had to go through it all again you know and uh, this time they did turn up, but uh, they dropped the theft charge on the morning after documentation showed that they, they got no got no evidence of it themselves. And I was advised to plead guilty to false accounting to avoid going into prison, which I did do, and uh, got a three-month suspended prison sentence.
0: And as part of your suspended sentence, you had to do
2: unpaid work, is that right? That's right, I did 110 hours of community service as well.
0: Taking you back to when you were arraigned and you had to plead guilty to false accounting. How did that make you feel? Bearing in mind, you knew you hadn't stolen money, but you didn't have any choice but to sign off the accounts in order to continue trading. Yeah, and the errors weren't your fault.
2: I realised that this was some kind of admin nightmare that there was nobody was going to look into why I, had, uh, I was cornered like that. It was just going to be: you did sign the accounts off, you have, you are guilty. No, there was never going to anyone was ever going to look into the circumstances that led to it. So it was pretty bad, really, because you felt like you were cornered and it was me versus Royal Mail. And I realised that there was just going to be very little uh, power on my side to even try and do anything about that. And I just had to go with the system as it was. Uh, it
0: didn't the judge mention the horizon system at some stage?
2: He did, he actually did mention that he was aware of problems with the horizon system that he wasn't party to, but the poster was assured him on in my case that everything was fine. He asked them if they could vouch for the system in my case, and they said we believe we can. Mm-hmm. And um the judge then
0: so did you that. had you ever seen any evidence to back that up? Because the word believe isn't well, we know we can. Here's the evidence. Yeah, no, they
2: didn't, uh, they didn't, they just didn't ask for anything else, and they didn't offer anything else. It was like that, then it was done, done, dusted almost. And I had, uh, I was, well, he, he told me three months in prison, was, there was quite a pause until he said suspended. So for, a, a so he few left you hanging. I thought I was actually going in. So you left you hanging? Just for a little few seconds, yeah.
0: And then you had to do unpaid work, I presume, with lots of other people who had committed criminal offences. What sort of unpaid work did you have to do?
2: Well, I went to the Massville Probation Service, which I didn't even know existed because I'm having never been in trouble with the law, and uh, I had to go through PowerPoints of uh, using... uh, Farming machinery, <laughs> yeah, so on roundabouts and things like that, you see people okay. wearing yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I asked if there's any way I could not do that sort of stuff, and I didn't really want to be wearing a community payback vest in full view of everyone in town, when I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. And uh, they offered me to work in Oxfam instead, which I, did. I worked in Oxfam sandwich I actually quite enjoyed it turned out.
0: From a personal point of view it's devastating for you but it, there must have been a knock-on effect for your family as well.
2: Yeah terrible because immediately my income dropped you know from I was earning between thirty-five and 40000 a year dropped to £52.25 a week income support mm-hmm. and I couldn't afford to pay for my daughter's school uniforms. We were struggling on the the, the rent of the post office and everything. If it wasn't for the fact that there were landlords, there was a bar actually next to the, the, the post office, and when uh, when they foreclosed on me, uh, the bar wanted to extend into that. And because of that, they the landlords did not enforce the remainder of the lease on me, which would have meant I would have lost my house if they had because they just thought it'd be better to just get rid of me on this one and get this bar moved in, and and rather than chase me for bankruptcy over the next couple of years or something like that. So I had seven days to find £5,000 and I could walk away from the lease. So I sold my car, I sold everything I'd got, basically, you know, to get out of the lease. So now we're in a situation where uh, we've still got the mortgage on the post office, which is still paying to this day. Uh, And obviously the fact that I was extremely on my upper so I couldn't afford to help my daughter out properly or be the dad I was meant to be. I know it's not all about money, but when you can't even afford to buy a new pair of shoes. No, it's, it's, it's a big issue, you know.
0: It's soul destroying isn't it yeah, I imagine? And, issue, and even yeah. worse as well, you, your name was in the paper. Yeah. Everyone yeah. knew yeah. about your
2: conviction. And being the postmaster, everybody knows you because you don't know everybody, but they all know you because almost everyone ends up going into the post office and so obviously I had the stigma of everybody in all of the edge reading that I pleaded guilty and it was pretty nightmarish because it didn't stop there even after the um, after my conviction and I'd done my community service and everything, and literally a couple of weeks later I got a letter from the post office the Proceeds of Crime Act application where they asked me to surrender my they said they'd been paying the mortgage on the proceeds of crime despite there being no evidence of theft and everything like this and uh, they asked me to surrender my uh, driving licence, passport and the deeds to my house and the lease to the shop, which is I still had the shop at this point. It was it was a few months after um, being committed that it was foreclosed. But I still had the shop, they wanted the deeds to that as well and everything. I reported this back to my same barrister that had represented me in Crown Court and he took it back in and uh, it was thrown out. It put me really in stress because I thought I was going to lose my house then. And I still hadn't told my daughter that the depths of this was going. If I had, perhaps to tell her, you're going to lose the house and, and my partner and everything. At the time. So, so nightmare stress, nightmare stress, and then uh, three, three and a half years unemployed. And then, at some point, you
0: become aware of others in a similar position. How soon after your sentence hearing did you become aware? Um,
2: well, I rang the uh, first of all. I rang the union. I did actually speak to good old George Thompson, the General Secretary, the infamous George Thompson. And when I told him the problem, he said to me, his first thing to me was, have you got gambling problems? That was his first... That was his first comment? Yeah. So I said, OSC, oh, I said, I thought I thought you were here to help. He said, oh, we've had plenty of people who've got gambling problems, sticking their hands in the till, and all that sort of stuff. Wow. Anyway, uh, I did start doing a little bit of research, but I just tied typing her post office system in. And I saw that there was various controversial um, articles about it and some other people had uh, had some problems with it and then I came across Alan Bates um, and uh, I was one of the first I'm not the first but in the first 20 or 30 I think to sort of join up with the JFSA as it was known to be known the Justice of Postmasters Alliance and uh, we started having meetings and started growing from there and realised and then I knew then I knew it wasn't me then I still got my doubts that had we screwed up had we made some gigantic mistakes that we just hadn't you know messed up or my staff had messed up I believed they hadn't but there was nothing to say otherwise you know because we and I was guilty of this that and the other as soon as the JFSA thing started it then vindicated I knew there was lots of other people who had been through the same nightmare as me So yeah. So
0: imagine you gained a lot of support from that. Yeah, you start realizing
2: it's not me. It's not me. And when you spoke to them, the same procedures had happened to them. The way they've been dealt with, pretty much. And you knew this was a a systemic thing, really, that was going on.
0: And did you get told from? Because a lot of people that I've spoken to about this case, and it's well documented a lot of people were told that you were the only one by the authorities so and yeah. no-one else had had a problem with that system.
2: You know, I said that I don't, I'm not sure about the Horizon system, or I don't trust it fully after this, you know. It's been all right up until this point, it seemed to be, so I didn't have any qualms with it. But now I, I don't... Well, you're the only person in this situation, told all. You didn't say you're the only other person that's uh, argued about Horizon. So, uh, yeah, it's so that's subtly different, but the same meaning, I think. Yeah.
0: yeah. and And then oh. at some point... You have the appeal, and that is... Did you go up to London for the appeal? Yeah. And that was in April this year, and your conviction was quashed. But essentially, the court made it clear. It didn't matter the fact that you pleaded guilty... Yeah, that's right. ...to the offence, because you were put in a position where you hadn't got a choice. Yeah. I mean, the appeal process is a long process, I know, and there must have been a great moment when your conviction was quash you're one of the first group mm-hmm. but there's a there must be a lot of sadness as well because you've had a lot of lost years yeah so it's uh, taken a long time to get
2: to that point. That's right. I mean, it's like 11 years or something, 12 years for me. To be honest, I wasn't too excited. I'm glad, obviously, it was great. It was a really nice day. It was a great day for us because it was it was really nice to actually be on, on the side where it's the post office that are in trouble now, you know, and not us anymore. That was a nice feeling. But because I'd never committed the offence, and it's supposedly spent after seven years anyway, although it still causes you problems... The fact that it was overturned was more of an admin thing for me. Uh, you know, I was really pleased with that. It was the fact that it was sh- the post office was shown to uh, to be an affront to the justice system, and you know, and stuff like this. It was those sides of things that were really good for me, because before this, obviously, we had the Horizon system, you know, and the way that, uh, the Horizon trials, the way that the post office had operated throughout that was, to me, it was th- that should that should have been criminal offences, really.
0: They conceded one of the grounds, which was uh, in your case. You couldn't have had a fair trial, yeah. but they didn't cons- no, concede the so. second ground, which the Court of Appeal actually said no. Yeah. We do find
2: the way you they basically use the justice system for their own ends, and so it like is an affront to the justice system.
0: For anyone else, as wants to take on a post office because the Horizon system is still the system that's
2: used. Yeah.
0: what would your well, uh, <laughs>
2: like? I don't think uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard to give anyone any advice on taking a post office on because uh, unless, I I mean my advice would be to not to because uh, unless the system and the contracts are completely rewritten so that you're not going to be in the the sort of liability that we had, it's just not worth it It, it's just not worth it because if something goes wrong, it's you that's the couple. The book starts with you The book starts with you straight away whether it was your fault or not, so I wouldn't do it
0: In the final part of this episode, I talked to Marion Holmes. Her late husband, Peter, died before his conviction was overturned. I'm very grateful to Marion for letting me her home and opening up so much about something that must be so painful to talk about, because it destroyed the last few years of his life. What is important, of course, is for you to know exactly what the Court of Appeal found when they quashed his conviction in April this year. They said the following... The post office accepted that this was an unexplained shortfall case and that the evidence from the Horizon was essential to Mr. Holmes' case. The ARQ data was obtained, but it was not clear whether it had been disclosed. It appeared that there was no evidence to corroborate the Horizon evidence. There was no investigation into the integrity of the Horizon figures and there was no proof of an actual loss as opposed to a horizon-generated shortfall. The Post Office conceded that Mr. Holmes' prosecution was unfair, but we are bound, the Court of Appeal said, to conclude that his prosecution was an addition and affront to justice. The public interest requires us to mark this latter conclusion. We do so by allowing his appeal on both ground one and two. His convictions are unsafe, notwithstanding his guilty pleas. We quash his conviction on all four counts. This is Peter's story. Hi, Marion. I wondered if first of all, you could just introduce yourself to the podcast listeners. Yes my name's Marion
3: Holmes, and I'm here because my husband, or my late husband, Peter, was convicted of false accounting with the post office
0: in December two thousand and ten. Thank you. Marion, what was life like? before well, your husband's nightmare began?
3: Well, we, we were both working hard. I had my own business. Peter was working as a manager in a post office and life was really pretty good. The children were growing up, so we had life to ourselves. We were planning as and when we would retire and what we would do with our, our lives. We could go out when we felt like it and
0: enjoy our life. And I know, just by way of background, that your husband Peter had worked as a police officer at one point.
3: Yes, he joined the force as a cadet in in 1960, I think it was. In 61, he was actually shot in a bank raid. Oh, wow. Um, and then we, his parents ran a small hotel and it was always understood that when they retired, we would take over the hotel. So in 1971, we left the
0: teaching, he left the police force and we ran the hotel for 20 years. And then after running the hotel, I also understand that your husband worked um, running post offices as well before he ended up in his final position.
3: Yes, he owned his own post office but unfortunately we bought the house first and the post office second and there was too much distance between the two. So sold that and he did relief work around the county relieving for people who were going on holiday, or he did a lot of it where post office put him into sub post offices where either the owner was ill or there was a problem, and Pete ran it and sorted it out. And then, in 1996, he was offered a job as managing Jesmond Post Office, which was back in his home area because he'd grown up in Jesmond, and uh, he ran that until he got kicked out.
0: Well, I wondered if we could talk about what happened. When did you become aware that there was a problem with Pete's work? For a while, I knew he wasn't
3: happy. He he wasn't well. But Peter being Peter, he just pocketed it up to himself. And then one afternoon, he came to the shop, to my shop, and he called me outside and he said, I've been kicked out of the post office. And that was the first I knew
0: of anything real problem. And then when did you become aware of the sort of scale of the problem? He had a full
3: interview with the owner, the, uh, the owner's father, who really owned the whole business, and the post office the following day. And I went home in the afternoon to get something from home. And he was there. And I said, oh, where's your car? He said, oh, they brought me home. And they were going through every single thing in his office his is a computer all his bank accounts and everything to see if they could find the money that they said was missing
0: you told me earlier when we were speaking outside the podcast that he'd offered to make them a cup of tea and because he was just being kind and um, he realized that they were obviously searching the premises and someone actually followed and watched him whilst he was doing that
3: yes they wouldn't let him out of the sight whether they thought that he was going to go and pull this forty-six pound out of somewhere and hide it somewhere else i don't know but no they wouldn't let him
0: and i know they've you know they got a forensic accountant to examine your finances and pete's and, and you were saying earlier about the carpet but they found a transaction and you'd essentially just you bought some new carpet for about 200 pounds certainly not 40 plus thousand pounds that he was eventually accused of stealing that's right um it, it was actually his immediate
3: boss um who said well doesn't JP carpets mean anything when it said have you had double glazing put in or this put in and he said no we've not spent anything I mean it was one of these well if it was working you didn't replace it I've lived on somebody else's carpets for 50 years so not exactly but we had replaced the carpet he always said yes 200 pounds for a bedroom carpet that was all all we'd spend
0: and I know that when he was interviewed he didn't have a solicitor present but he obviously was familiar with an interview process albeit it was a different authority in questioning him and he raised issues that he had with the Horizon system he knew really from the outset that there must be something wrong with that system didn't he? That's right
3: He's, he'd said all along I mean He said before, when the first put Horizon in and did the training, that he hadn't had enough training, but nothing was done about it. And then, when they said, "Could he account for this loss?" He said, "Something to do with the Horizon." They said, "Well, nobody else has had any bother. How come you have?"
0: And we know that turned out not to be a lot of people. Yeah, and we know that by then it turned Mm. out that that wasn't true, and and they knew it wasn't true. How? was it for you and, and the family after he was accused, before, before he ended up in court, what, what was it life like?
3: Apart from he didn't have a job, therefore we hadn't any spare money. We both were of the opinion, well, British justice won't convict him, you know, and, and he it, uh, he was accused in 2008, and it was 2010 before we went to court, and we just thought, well, we've heard nothing. In fact, just that day, my um, local postmaster, who Peter had relieved for earlier on, said, has Peter ever heard anything more about the post office? And I said, no. He said, well, no, thank heaven for that, because when I told him what had happened he said not oh, peter you know he didn't believe it for one so, moment for one minute and that day i came home and he said oh i've had a letter from the post office that's taking me to court." and so that must have been about 18 months that we did not hear a, a word from them and then proceedings started we got a
0: solicitor and that
3: was that was that
0: and what actually happened was that as the trial was getting nearer and nearer he decided didn't he that he didn't want to take the risk because he he knew the criminal justice system to a degree because he had worked in the police and he knew how serious the allegation was and he decided taking on board the advice that he would plead guilty to false accounting and they would then obviously offer no evidence to the theft. I know that was very near to the trial when that deal was offered. Is it that right? It
3: was the last. It was the last. The deal we were actually the last. Our last appearance in court when our. barrister called us in he said oh they've offered you if you accept false accounting you they'll drop the theft charge and Peter said yeah because he knew that theft from your employer almost invariably meant that you'd go to prison and he couldn't take that and when we've talked to other people 90% of them had been told the same thing right at the last minute so he pleaded guilty and what sentence did he get he got three months tagged um carefully. He had to be in by seven o'clock every night until seven o'clock in the morning. As it happened, they never did put a tag on him, but you know, you never know whether somebody's watching. So we stuck to it religiously for three months. He, he didn't go out between seven at night and seven in the morning.
0: And after um, he had pleaded guilty and he'd been sentenced, what was life like for him? He just shut
3: down basically because I I had intended I was on the point of putting the shop on the market but I decided well I better keep going because that was the only income coming in he hadn't any spare money to go out he didn't really have any hobbies so for that last four years before I eventually sold the shop all he did was either sit and watch television or sit on a computer neither of which did him any good physically
0: and so it's helpful was declining. He was very isolated, and I imagine it was very stressful for you because you're going to work and you come home. You've got your three children, and and he's understandably very depressed mm. uh, and soul destroying mm. for him. Because yeah. I remember you saying before, and when I've spoken to your phone he's a real. He was a real people person. Yeah,
3: and and suddenly that all shut down. I mean, if I'd asked if I'd suggested he went to the doctor about depression, don't be silly, you do there isn't such a you know, that age group, depression wasn't on the horizon at the time. No, it just literally shut down and that was that was that, that was that. And it was only really after he died Nearly every letter and card that I got to people who've known him years ago said I'll always miss his sense of humour. And I said to my daughter, Do you know, the sad thing is I've forgotten he's got one. Because he got lost. he got lost, yeah, he his, got lost
0: his, in himself. In himself. Yeah. When, obviously, that that's very distressing to hear that. And I know that he did tragically pass away. But before he passed away, I know that both of you became aware at some stage that you weren't the only ones oh yeah that what you had been told wasn't Mm. true Mm. and when did you first become aware that there were other people straight away because
3: as we came we came home from the court and a friend who was at court with us rang up and said go on onto your computer type in post office problems and see what comes up And we found a forum that Alan Bates had set up and it was on, and there was a meeting on the Sunday and in Bedford, so rang Alan and said if I come down we were supposed to see some solicitors Said, I've just about got time to drive to Bedford, see somebody and drive back, as soon as I get there can I see somebody and not have to wait in the queue so that was what we did and then shortly after that Alan set up this meeting in Warwickshire and I think there was about 20 some at the first meeting and everybody went round the room, giving a little detail to what had happened to them and nearly every case was the same absolutely to identical
0: and when you say identical
3: in what way in the doll lost money it's your fault and the doll said it's the horizon system and it nearly everybody had been told at the very last minute plead guilty to false accounting and will drop the theft charge the difference was Peter was a manager, so he didn't have to pay back the 46,000. His boss did. The others had had to pay back the money. If they pay back the money, plead guilty to false accounting, we've dropped the theft charge. So,
0: in some ways, it must have been very distressing to hear that there's other people in that position, but also comforting to know that you're not no, the only was, one. It was. I
3: mean, you know, until till we went on that website, unfortunately for us, it was almost immediately. We thought nobody else had what well, we've been told nobody else had had any problems the post office said nobody else has had problems how come you
0: have and i know you were part of the group that went to the high court um, against the post office and obviously you were also part of the group that went to the appeal court because uh, you appealed against your husband's conviction on his behalf obviously because he has tragically passed away before his name was cleared. There were a number of you involved in that appeal action. What did it mean to you and your family to have Peter's name, name cleared? Peter
3: always said the only thing he wanted was his name cleared and the article put in the paper the size of the one that was in the paper when he was convicted. And my QC arranged for that. And the local paper put a full-page article in to say that he was innocent. And that, I wish you'd been here to see.
0: Yeah, that must have been a very monumental moment. Mm -hmm. And in relation to what's still going on, there's still an ongoing fight, isn't there? Not just for other people, because we know there are a large number of people that were wrongly convicted and pleaded guilty to charges that they shouldn't have had to plead guilty to. Um, but we're put in a very, almost impossible position. But also there's obviously the compensation side as well. Nothing can turn back the clock, I appreciate that. But if you could give, uh, I've asked everyone really, who I'm doing an interview with, sort of one piece of advice who's in a similar position, perhaps their husband has been convicted of something that they didn't do and they've since passed away or perhaps it's just someone who is in the same position Peter was in and is fighting against a, a big organisation like the post office what would your advice be? Try and find
3: somebody else who's doing it as well and it's only because we were able to get eventually 550 people together that we could get backing to take them to court so that we could get the post office at brought to account as to what they've done. Because up to that point, individuals can't do anything against big organisation. One postmaster, I think he was from Bridlington, tried it and he had, it cost him £300,000. One individual cannot take on the sort of backing that the post office, they threw money at it because it was public money. They could throw any amount of money and one individual doesn't stand a chance. You've got to find somebody else who's in the same boat and club together and try and do something about it. And I
0: imagine from your point of view as well, just don't give up No,
3: no. I mean, there's been times since Peter died when I wanted to. Once he was, once he was clear, once his name was cleared, I never wanted to give up till his name was cleared. Once his name was cleared, I thought, that's it. But then the solicitors have got on board and say, well, no, you know, And I think, well, yes, it didn't just affect me, it affected the three children. Okay, there weren't young children at the time, but they had to go to work the next day. And um, my younger daughter was to go and do a pharmacy course. And to be honest, we had to persuade her to carry on because she said, well, no, I can't because now you've got no money to be behind me. But So she nearly didn't become a pharmacist for it. Um,
0: so there's a knock-on effect, isn't there? It yeah. doesn't matter how old your children were at the time, there is an impact. And, yeah. and like you said the newspapers I mean now they have published this big article mm. showing that your husband name has been cleared but at the beginning they published an article very big article his photo saying that he was guilty mm. and of course that would have been circulated around the community
3: yes and I mean you can imagine we're going into work next morning having that saying that and no but Half of half your colleagues and bosses and everybody else has seen the same article. I can't be, can't even begin to feel what they they must have felt that next morning. Fortunately, anybody who actually knew Peter just didn't believe it. No, but there's always those that didn't know him that. Oh, that's why Peter Holmes left the post office in such a hurry.
0: Well, I know that it's distressing. I imagine having to talk about it, and like you said, you're still having to fight to get what you and Peter deserve or what. Would want you to do, I imagine. But um, thank you ever so much, Marion, for taking time to talk to me. Thank you. I'd just like to take the opportunity to thank everyone who appeared on this podcast episode, in particular, Marion and Scott. I'd also like to tell you about the next episode when we look at another post office victim, Rabina Shaheen. Mohammed, Rabina's husband, opens up and tells us about what happened to them. It is a tragic case because Rabina not only lost her liberty, her home, and her reputation, the stress of what happened to her and to Mohammed has had a devastating detrimental effect on her health.